you know, obviously there's a whole backstory to you arriving in Dallas. So tell us a little bit about um, your family, what it was like growing up. Yeah, I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, the main distinguishing mark of our faith was we watched the Steelers game after we went to church. And so that was about what Christianity was. Uh, we did youth activities from time to time, but I didn't see much different from the way non-Christians live versus the way Christians lived. And I'd be reading through some things that Jesus was saying, and my biggest hang-up was I didn't see anybody actually taking what Jesus said seriously. And so actually I left the whole idea of church and Christianity and whatnot because I thought it was just something you woke up for on Sunday morning before watching the Steelers. So that was my major hang-up. And probably, and then shortly after I did that, actually, my church that my family went to had one of those church splits, which was kind of terrible. And so that really just confirmed with me, like, these people are no different. I'm kind of done with this whole thing. And just kind of went on and started my own life. And about two years later, is I was in Delaware in 2006, seven. It was in December, January. How old were you at this point? 17. So I'm young. Sorry. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so I was 17, uh, junior in high school and went out to Delaware to catch up with some friends that I knew there from summer camp, surprisingly, a few years back. And they were the first people in my life I saw actually take what Jesus said seriously. Their entire lives were, how can we make Jesus visible? And it just totally caught me off guard because up until then, Christians just went to church on Sunday then watched the Steelers. And so it just conflicted with my entire paradigm of how I viewed Christianity and whatnot. And so then I, we were, I was there, we went to some Battle of the Bands, and I just couldn't handle it anymore. I needed to process what was happening for the last few days. And so I went to this gas station, it's called Wawa, for those of you who know what it is. It's the greatest gas station of all time. They sell like this actual food that they cook and whatnot, a lot of good coffees, homemade coffee. They have Slurpee machines. It's like a haven for a 17-year-old. Cheap food also. And so I went there just with the plan of just processing it. I went to get some food, a pack of cigarettes, and just process. And I saw this girl there. And so I did what I typically do when I'm interested in a girl. I started flirting with her. And we started talking and whatnot. And so about a week had gone by, two weeks had gone by. And she just kind of asked me this question off the cuff of what I thought about Jesus. And I was like, oh, that's a fascinating question. And so I told her about my hurt from the church and whatnot, but how for the last two weeks I've been wrestling with what I thought about Christianity and Christians and all that. And she just kind of paused and said, but you didn't answer my question. I asked you about who Jesus was in your life, not about who Christians were. I was like, and in my mind, those two were blended, but it wasn't until she brought that up that I saw that there was a distinction. And one of the things that she said to me was, it's not what Christians say or do, it's how much Jesus loves them, despite what they say or do. And that just, like, wrecked me to the point where I just discovered God that night. And so, do you have any questions? <laughs> I so, kind of said that quickly. No, no, you're good. So, so... All of a sudden, like, that's the first time when you thought about, was it like in that moment a light bulb went off, like, Jesus is a person, and I've got to figure out who, who he is, or, or what, what, what happened in that? Tell us a little more about that. I just saw for the first time that 
like, yeah, Christians can screw up. They can be what we call hypocrites or whatever. But they do not influence who Jesus is. Actually, Jesus is way more beautiful and awesome by the fact that he sees this hypocrisy and that he screw-ups and still says, I love you, you're my bride. And it was like, I haven't looked at it like that. I just saw all the screw-ups reflecting poorly on this guy named Jesus rather than the opposite where he looks way more awesome because of it. So. Sounds like grace became real to you in that moment. Yeah. It was more than just a thought or something. Yeah, and the love of God was real cool in that moment. So, so, so what happened next? I got real heavy, heavily involved with young life at my school for the next year and a half. I was a leader and tried to figure out ways that I could implement taking Jesus seriously and what he said and did and whatnot. And so I applied to Liberty University for two reasons. One, one of those girls that was in Delaware was going there. And two, you had to have a 1.8 GPA to get in. It was really cool. <laughs> what I did not know about Liberty University, nor had I experienced either of these things before, was I did not have roles growing up. My parents recognized that I was a rebel pretty early in life, and they knew that if they gave me roles, I would have no idea what was right and wrong, and I would just do what I wanted to do and break everything that they did and whatnot. And so they gave me a lot of freedom to discover what I thought was right and wrong, how to live, etc. I also did not know what a Southern Baptist was or who Jerry Falwell was. I love Southern Baptists now, but at the time they had a lot of rules and restrictions, things that I did not know anything about. And so when I got there and learned that there were about 5,000 rules, me and my roommate, who happened to be a rebel as well, neither of us knew this, but when we applied there, made it a goal to break every single rule that we possibly could do. We immediately got thrown into the party scene at Liberty University. Uh, I was partying pretty much every day for about a year and a half. I was working for this guy named Eddie who ran a, or coordinated, I guess you could say, the party scene in Lynchburg. I was his right-hand man. We did a lot of probably really shady stuff making this happen and whatnot. And it got to the point in October 2009 that he offered me his position. He was leaving town for a couple years and wanted me to do what he had been doing in Lynchburg for the last 10 years. And I gladly accepted that offer. I was going to drop out of school. It was. At this point in my life, Jesus was the furthest thing from my mind. I was just living every day for how can I make this party bigger and better. And so, and I was planning on telling my parents I was done with school, I was done with all this, and I was going to go home for Thanksgiving. And two days before I was going to go home, Eddie ditched town for many different reasons that would take forever to go into. And I was left with no job, no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I had no interest in staying in school, but I kind of had no other avenue to explore. And so my roommate talked me into going back to school. I was very against the concept. So, so things are kind of, at this point, you had had this encounter with God, but in the context of at Liberty, like things were not... Yeah, I, you were kind of seeing things, not just hypocrisy, but what you thought was just really empty 
Well, it was more I just I just learned for the first time I was a rebel. I didn't know this about myself because I didn't have rules. And to go to a place where there were all these rules, I experienced what a lot of people do when they're 14 or 15 years old, where their parents give them all these rules and then they sneak out of the house and break everything. I had like a lot of friends that did that in high school, but I couldn't understand why they did that. And then when I got the liberty and went from zero rules to like a million, it felt like, I felt like I reverted back and I just, every decision I made to start with was I just need, was out of this, how many rules can I break? And then it just degraded and spiraled out of control into I'm enjoying my life and I just never even really thought again about Jesus, Christianity, et cetera, what that meant to me for that year and a half. So. so you decided to stick with school. Yeah, yeah. My roommate Johnny talked me into taking a couple classes he was taking. Uh, one of these was a Greek class taught by a guy named Brian Scalise. And he tells the story this way, and you'll learn quickly. He's probably the most important person in my life. Where, So I go to class. It's a Tuesday, Thursday class. It's from 11 to 12.30. So first day of class on Tuesday, I show up 45 minutes late reeking like cigarettes, put my head down on the desk and pass out. All right, I don't know what this guy's deal is, but that's okay. He'll come in motivated on Thursday. So Thursday, I shoot him an email at about 5.30 in the afternoon and tell him I forgot we had class on Thursdays. He's like, who is this guy that forgets you have class on a Thursday? So he's not really excited about me being in his class anymore, but he's curious to see what happens. Tuesday, I show up 50 minutes late, pass out. Thursday, 45 minutes late again, pass out, same story. So I'm at Panera Bread uh, later that day on Thursday with a couple of my buddies just grabbing food. And I see this guy across the restaurant make eye contact with me. My biggest pet peeve is knowing somebody but not knowing where I know them from. And so I'm like trying to like figure out where the, I know this guy from and whatnot, and he starts walking over. I'm like, oh, this is terrible. And so he comes over to the table, introduces himself. He's like, hey, I'm Brian Scalise. I'm Mike Turner. Like, I know you're in my Greek class. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. <laughs> and his response was, I wouldn't expect you to know that. You've been awake for about 30 seconds in my class over the last two weeks. I'm like, I deserve that. So he's like, I'm like, what's up? He's like, oh, what are you doing tomorrow? I don't discuss that with Liberty University professors, but I hope you have a good weekend. He's like, no, really, there's a wing shop called McAdoo's. They have 30 cent wings on Friday. My treat, let's go. I'm like, not interested, but I don't hang out with Liberty professors. I'll see you Tuesday. He's like, all right. Sat down at the table. He's like, well, let's talk now and get to know each other. To which I looked at him and said, I'll see you tomorrow. And so I went Friday. Uh, I stacked two or three packs of cigarettes up on the table and looked at him and said, I smoke one every 10 to 15 minutes. There is, you're not allowed to smoke inside. So just so you know, that's how this conversation is going to go. He's like, okay, no problem. And every 10 or 15 minutes he went outside with me. I blew smoke in his face to get him to quit hanging out with me. It didn't work. The guy kept coming over to my house repeatedly, like three, four times a week for the next two months. So I decided to get smart and say, if you kept coming over to my house, I'm not going to your class anymore. So from March 1st until finals week, I went to his class zero times. And he came over five or six times a week, which was really annoying. And so I took his final. I got a 28 on his final and a 44 in the class. I was like, well, Greek's not for me. I already knew that, but that's okay. 
So he comes over, he's like, hey, Mike, we're going to bring up your grade. Grades are due. I'm like, not interested. So he starts trying to negotiate and bribe me to bring up my grade. And the final deal was two 20-ounce porterhouse steaks, a 24-pack of Newcastle, three of my favorite cigars, and a job being his teaching assistant, where I would make $3,000 a semester grading Greek assignments for him. Which and, I don't know great. Hold on, we, we got to stop for a second. Tell them about the rules at Liberty pertaining to some of what you just talked about. Well, there's no smoking, there's no drinking, there's... And, and your professor who works for Liberty is giving you this deal. Yeah, typically you have to go through an interview process to also get a job like this. You probably have to demonstrate that you might know something about the subject that you're going to be grading for. Like, it just made no sense. So finally I accepted. We brought my grade up to a C, and then he started hanging out with me regularly to the point where we became best friends. Um, so at the end of 2009, I had no direction in my life. I was in the party scene very hard. By the end of 2010, I was hanging out with this PhD student who taught Greek at Liberty University, and a bunch of his PhD student friends and professors and whatnot Friday nights doing like a book club and whatnot. And I was the only one that wasn't working or had finished a PhD that was there. And so I started to get kind of a big head that this guy was hanging out with me and wanted to be in my life. And so students were, like some of my classmates were trying to figure out how I got this gig and what that looked like. And so I was like, well, I guess he thought I was cool and whatnot. That's why he wanted to hang out with me. And so he got wind of this and very harshly pulled me aside and said, why do you think I hang out with you? I'm like, I don't know. I'm cool. You're cool. Let's make this happen. And he was like, so he started telling me his story, where he was the last cut from the 1998 World Cup soccer team for the US, that he got kicked out of two different schools where he had full rides for soccer because of drugs and whatnot. And when he was my age, he was living in his parents' basement doing drugs, dealing drugs, whole nine yards. And his life was out of control. And there was nobody there for him when his life was there. And so he became a Christian sometime after that. And for the next 10 years was a very fundamental Christian where he had roles and whatnot. And the semester before I met him, God kept trying to say to him, fundamentalism doesn't mean that you're a Christian and Christianity is not fundamentalism necessarily. And so he broke down a lot of his roles and whatnot. And he said that when I came into his class, he recognized like God was saying this because God was trying to get him to then reach into my life. And so he refused for the first two weeks. And he said when he was sitting there at Panera, God was pretty much audibly speaking to him, go talk to that guy, invite him to grab wigs. And he was like, I have no interest in doing that. And God kept pushing and pushing. And so finally he came into my life and it was just this big reality check because up until then I really actually didn't realize how far my life had spun out of control. It was not apparent to me that it was visible to people at Liberty or to my family or friends or any of that. I thought I had it under wraps and I still had on I guess a mask of some sort that I was hiding that. And so that really just kind of shook me and whatnot and gave me some humility to go along with what I was learning, which I needed. Wow. So, so it sounds, I mean, what, what I hear in, in what you just shared is that 
God worked it in his life, kind of found him at rock bottom. Yeah. When he had spiraled out, and he saw himself in you, and what God had done in him motivated him. The love that and grace that he had received motivated yeah. him to give that to you. Yeah, yeah, it was really cool. He was the one that encouraged me to seek out DTS. He, because he saw a lot of the same trajectory in my life as in his life. And so, through his encouragement, I actually ended up at DTS. I lived with this guy for four months, rent-free. I was in his wedding. Like, he and I were exceptionally close. And I would not be where I am today without him. So he, he gets you to Dallas for the most yeah. part, kind of encourages you yeah, there was a, to get down here. And then what happens when well, you get down here? Well, there was a six-month stint, actually, between when I graduated okay. from Liberty in December 2011. To, I moved down to Dallas in May 2012. And so during that six-month stint, I was very focused on academia. I actually kind of probably hid behind a mask of academia when it came to Christianity. Because this idea of doing what I'm doing right now is horrifying to me at times. Being transparent, actually being relational. like, And so I had all these fears, and so I just hid behind this mask of I can define Christianity and understand and know about who God is and whatnot. And so when I was in Pittsburgh, I met this girl named Becca who... She shared my love for theology and like understanding God and knowing about God. But she drove me crazy because she liked going to church and she defined Christianity and these relational terms. I just couldn't understand that. And so when I moved to Dallas, we made a compromise. I was going to go to 10 churches. I was going to give each church one week. And week 11 was marked in my Wait, calendar. Hold, hold on Sorry. just a second. After that... Like, it was 10 weeks, and then you were done, yeah. and you weren't ever going yeah. to church. Yeah, week 11. And she was okay with that. Yes. Yeah. Week 11 was in my calendar. I didn't have to go to church and that. I was super excited. I knew which churches I was going to for those 10 weeks, and I was home free. And so Skillman was church number one. And I have been here for two years longer than I planned on it. <laughs> so this guy named Mike Kaiser, you may know him kind of cornered me in the booth and didn't leave me for like an hour and a half. He got my phone number and called me at like 8 o'clock in the morning the next day to grab lunch. Who is this guy? <laughs> he invited me to play on uh, the greatest softball team of all time uh, <laughs> to do this ring of fire thing and it just, this church just kept coming and coming up in my life and God has used this church, people here, in real powerful ways to get me into this idea that Christianity isn't knowing about God, that it's being relational with God, that it's knowing Him, and also recognizing that He invites us to hear His story as much as He wants to hear ours. And that kind of changed for me. So, Yeah, it's a big difference to to just know about God, to study him as this idea, and to walk with him, and to know him, and trust him, and watch him change your life. Yeah, I mean, if you would have told me three years ago you'd be praying for me, I would be very upset, because the idea of inviting this all-powerful, all-knowing God into my life on my behalf, I didn't want that. Like, that was a horrifying thought to me. Like, this big God, I'm going to keep him here, I'm going to stay here, I'll read about him, but we're going to have all these buffers to keep him from entering my zone of life and whatnot. 
so and so uh, one conversation I had with John Kiever, I had to do an assignment for a class at DTS. I actually wasn't planning on staying at Skillman at the time. This church still scared me. And, but we had to do an assignment where we had to ask a pastor a couple questions. I'm like, well, I don't know any other pastors, so I'll stay at this church a couple weeks longer and whatnot. So I interviewed John Kieber, and I don't even know what the subject was, to be completely honest. And then he asked me to share this story, and so I shared aspects of it. I don't know what all I did and whatnot. And so and I told him like how much angst and hurt I've experienced from the church. That was probably the main thing I focused on, because I wanted him to understand why I wasn't going to be coming back. And he related to all that. And I was like, what is he doing? And I was like, this is awesome that a pastor of a church actually agrees with all this pain and hurt and has examples of his own. And then he just turned to me, and I'm not going to say exactly what he said, but he was talking about how ugly the church was, and he's like, but yet Christ still loves it. And then it tied back to when I was 17 and heard that, and he didn't hear that aspect of it. And it just, I hadn't remembered that part of my life until he said that. And it just was like, oh my gosh. It just changed how I thought. I'm like, I got to keep going to this church and whatnot. And over the last two years, one of the questions God has kept asking me is, do you want to get to know me or are you going to keep fleeing? And so when Becca and I broke up for different reasons, I was tempted to leave again because I was like, I just go to church for her. And then I realized, like, no, I don't go to church for her. That's been the excuse I kept telling myself. But in reality, I actually go to church because I enjoy being here. I enjoy people's company and whatnot. And so it's been really different and cool. So. One, one thing you shared with me, tell him a little bit about one of the things. In your conversation with Kiever, what did he say he thought God had brought you to Skillman for? You to learn how to love the church, to be honest. Uh, I have spent a lot of my time with non-Christians. Those are the people I relate to the best. I just know where they are at. I understand their stories. And I always had a lot of angst towards the church, in part because they viewed non-Christians as projects that if we can get this number, we can reach our quota for the week or month or whatever. And it just drove me crazy. But John Kiever kind of showed me, like, you view the church the way non-Christians, uh, you view the church how Christians view non-Christians. They're a project. You have to like give yourself a quota every week of how you're going to love them, and if you fulfill it, you pat yourself on the back. You're not viewing them as people, just like you accuse the Christians of not loving the non-Christians as people. That kind of hit me hard. So. Yeah, that can go both ways. So, and I don't know. Like I've been at DTS. I came to be a Greek professor, to be honest, because I wanted to be like that guy Brian Scalise, and. God quickly shut that door through a lot of scenarios. I had no idea why I was here, and I was actually planning on dropping out, but I was just figuring, talking to God, figuring that out. And when I committed to being here for another year, I signed a lease, made a payment to school and whole nine yards. Um, I went out to Colorado to visit one of my best friends. And God, through just us conversing, kind of gave him and I both direction of where we were gonna go. God kind of showed us that we both relate to non-Christians well, and why not open a bar for the purposes of building relationships with people, loving them, showing them Jesus. And I kind of thought that was a pipe dream. 
And in the last like year, God has brought so many different influences and circumstances into my life to kind of show me, this is where I want you to go and it's gonna be fun. I don't know how it's gonna work exactly, but God is been just opening doors like crazy, whereas every other pipe dream I had, I've had doors hit me in the face and all that, and so. It's interesting. I just love his story because there's there's this major theme that I hear in it over and over, but especially in Scalise's pursuit of him is that, you know, God, against all the barriers that we set up and against every attempt we have to keep him out, he relentlessly chases us down. And he comes after us, and his love and his grace are just like this steam engine that will not be stopped. You know, we can do everything we can to try to keep him out, and yet he still will find us if that is what he wants to do. And uh, so I thank you for sharing your story, yeah. and I love that, that, you know, as a result of God changing your life, now you want to be involved in others' lives, and it's, it's, it's yeah. changed your whole view on what life is about. Yeah, totally. So I want to pray for Mike, and then we'll, uh, we'll sing a song and close, but... Uh, Thank you so much. We all give him a hand. Thank him. Thank you. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for Mike. We thank you for the ways that you've rescued him, that you've uh, just stepped into his life and, and revealed yourself to him in powerful ways. I thank you for your love, for your grace that um, is real, that has found us. And we, we ask that you would help us to to not just see the things that you've given us, the love, the grace, as gifts to just cherish and hold to ourselves, but to then turn around and give away, as this man did with Mike and as Mike intends to do and is doing right now. We pray that we would see all that you've blessed us with as something you want for us to give away so that you will be worshipped, so that you will be known, so that you will receive praise and glory. We thank you that you pursue us even when we run from you, even when we try to keep you out. Thank you that you're persistent. Thank you that your love for us isn't based on us. It's not based on our performance. It's not based on anything other than who you are, your very character. We praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.